Hey folks, this is John Lawrence, and in this episode I want to do a quick rundown on the Imperial College Report, published Monday the 16th of March this last week, that influenced policy change on social distancing in Great Britain and the United States this last week. The Imperial College in London is one of the world's top research universities and houses a highly regarded epidemiological research center, which produced the report on COVID-19. The research center in the Imperial College is called the MRC Center for Global Infectious Disease Analysis. Neil Ferguson is the lead author of the report and an influential voice in the international epidemiology community, who also this week contracted COVID-19 himself. And I'll tell you more on that in a minute. The MRC Center for Global Infectious Disease Analysis advises governments and organizations like the World Health Organization, on global epidemiology. They describe themselves this way, quote, the MRC Center for Global Infectious Disease Analysis is an international resource and center of excellence for research and capacity building on the epidemiological analysis and modeling of infectious diseases. We undertake applied collaborative work with national and international agencies to support policy planning and response operations against infectious disease threats. We undertake a wide range of innovative world-class research that can make a demonstrable economic and social impact, carrying out research on emerging and endemic diseases, and we have a focus on ensuring modeling is translated into practical policy guidance for planning and responding to infectious disease threats, end quote. So this team put out a report on the 16th of March, and I'd like to unpack the big picture of the report and some of the specific findings. I'll start with Dr. Ferguson's summary of the report published in an Imperial College news briefing. He says, quote, The world is facing the most serious public health crisis in generations. Here in the report, we provide concrete estimates of the scale of the threat countries now face. We use the latest estimates of severity to show that policy strategies which aim to mitigate the epidemic might have deaths and reduce peak healthcare demand by two-thirds but that this will not be enough to prevent health systems being overwhelmed. More intensive and socially disruptive interventions will therefore be required to suppress transmission to low levels. It is likely such measures, most notably large-scale social distancing, will need to be in place for many months, perhaps until a vaccine becomes available. Okay, so I want to look at the report a little bit more closely. I'm going to give you a rundown on it. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you or get into all the details, uh, but I do want to give you a rundown on it because this is what a lot of governments and public policy uh, is being shaped around right now. So the report is titled Impact of Non-Pharmaceutical Interventions, NPIs, to Reduce COVID-19 Mortality and Healthcare Demand. They basically looked at the disease outbreak patterns from China and Italy and created complex modeling, which is described in the report, to estimate the impact on ICU bed utilization and total death rates correlated to two public responses, one they call mitigation and the other suppression. These two broad global public responses include varying levels of social distancing, including the following five elements. One, case isolation in the home. So having positive COVID-19 patients stay home for quarantine for the duration of their illness, usually about two weeks. Two, voluntary quarantine of all family members of symptomatic cases. So anybody in the house of someone that gets COVID-19 also self-quarantines. Three, social distancing of those over 70 years of age. 
those most ri at risk uh, for morbidity and mortality related to the disease. Four, social distancing of the entire population. And five, closure of schools and universities. So mitigation includes some combination of a few of those practices, while suppression includes all of them. Now, again, I'm not going to pack all of the details of the report. You should definitely go read it yourself. It's quite elegant and fascinating, and it's not hard to read. But for the next few minutes, I want to read you some quotes from the report, which will help bring it to life. These quotes are pulled kind of at random from the report as highlights. Um, hopefully, they'll help kind of bring this report to light. So, quote, we assume that 30% of those that are hospitalized will require critical care, invasive mechanical ventilation, or ECMO, based on early reports from COVID-19 cases in the UK, China, and Italy. Based on expert clinical opinion, we assume that 50% of those in critical care will die. In the unlikely absence of any control measures or spontaneous changes in individual behavior, we would expect a peak mortality, daily deaths, to occur after approximately three months in scenarios with an estimated reproduction number of 2.4 we predict 81 percent of great britain and u.s populations would be infected over the course of the epidemic now they're saying that this is unlikely so one so you have to understand this report is an epidemiological modeling of various factors of COVID-19. So they look at how virulent the disease is in terms of how it spreads with the reproduction number of different numbers, which is for every one person, how many other people get infected. So they're saying with the reproduction number of one person infected to 2.4, who would be infected by that one individual, with no mitigation strategies in place, they would predict that 81% of Great Britain and the United States populations would be infected. So this is unlikely because, as we know, governments all over the world are taking unprecedented measures to curb the spread of the disease. All right, back to the report. Quote, in total, in an unmitigated ep epidemic, we would predict approximately 510,000 deaths in Great Britain and 2.2 million in the U.S., not accounting for the potential negative effects of health systems being overwhelmed on mortality. So again, what they're saying is that in an unmitigated epidemic, those are their projected numbers. But that does not include all of the other morbidity and mortality that would come as a result of the healthcare systems being overwhelmed. So the inability to treat things like heart disease or strokes, uh, hypertension or other emergencies, trauma that might arise during the time that we're overwhelmed with COVID-19 patients. So back to the report, quote, for an uncontrolled epidemic, we predict critical care bed capacity would be exceeded as early as the second week in April of 2020, with an eventual peak in ICU or critical care bed demand that is over 30 times greater than the maximum supply in both countries. Now, what's interesting about this here in Portland, Maine, is that we are beginning to see the flow of the rising tide of patients here in late March. As of yesterday evening, when I left the ORs, we have five confirmed cases in our hospital, in, in our ICU specifically, and we are rapidly adjusting our local response to meet the demand. This has included limiting all visitors to the hospital, with the exception of parents to children, the partner of an obstetric patient, a ride home for day surgery patients, and one visitor at a time for patients receiving end-of-life care. We are also rapidly adjusting our staffing utilization for CRNAs. 
This week, we cross-trained nearly all of our CRNA staff to support our critical care nurses, physicians, and advanced practice providers in managing the coming tidal wave of patients that we're expecting. We thought we would be asked to provide support weeks or months from now into the ICUs, but our first CRNAs to deploy as support staff to the ICUs went this morning. Up to now, our community has been, quote, in the moment before the moment, as Rob Bell puts it, the moment before we see just how bad this will get. But now, that moment seems to be arriving. So back to the report. The report states, quote, the aim of mitigation is to reduce the impact of an epidemic by flattening the curve, reducing peak incidence and overall deaths. However, an optimal mitigation scenario would still result in an eight-fold higher peak demand on critical care beds over and above the available surge capacity in both Great Britain and the United States. Still quoting from the report, a minimum policy for effective suppression is therefore population-wide social distancing combined with home isolation of cases and school and university closure. To avoid a rebound in transmission, these policies will need to be maintained until large stocks of vaccines are available to immunize the population, which could be 18 months or more. Technologies such as mobile phone apps that track individuals' interactions with other people in society might allow such a policy to be more effective and scalable if the associated privacy concerns can be overcome. Long-term suppression may not be a feasible policy option in many countries. The combination of case isolation, household quarantine, and social distancing of those at higher risk of severe outcomes, older individuals and those with underlying health conditions, are the most effective policy combination for epidemic mitigation. Given the most systematic surveillance occurs in the hospital context, the typical delay from infection to hospitalization means there is a two to three week lag between interventions being introduced and the impact being seen in hospitalized case numbers, depending on whether all hospital emissions are tested or only those entering critical care units. Okay, so now this is an important point. What Dr. Ferguson and his team are saying is that if the most effective screen for positive COVID-19 patients happens in the hospital, and if it takes two to three weeks before an infected person gets ill enough to need hospitalization, then there is an inherent lag time between social distancing practices a society takes today and the impact we would expect to see from those patients on reducing case numbers. The flow of patients to the hospital this week contracted the virus two to three weeks ago during social interactions that were going on back then. And we won't see those who got the virus this week during the social interactions they had out in public this week until another two or three weeks when their disease has progressed to the state where they would need hospitalization, potentially. And that's why it's so hard, uh, and that's what's so hard about social distancing practices, including school, university, conference, restaurant, and other closures. You don't see the impact on curbing the viral spread for weeks. And that is why it's critical to take drastic action early. A whole other element to this is the availability of testing. I'm not going to do a deep dive into testing practices in this episode, but the fact of the matter is that if you don't have robust testing, which the United States does not, you don't know how big of a problem you have or how to advise individuals on self-quarantine. So the practice locally this last week is that if you're symptomatic here in Maine, but you don't need hospitalization, you're not going to be tested due to lack of availability of testing. This creates all kinds of problems, chiefly that infected individuals may not know 
that they're carrying COVID or coronavirus 19 and continue to engage in social interactions they otherwise might not if they knew that they were infected, thereby needlessly spreading the virus. I want to draw your attention to another element of the modeling in the Imperial College study. Several of their projections predicted a peak ICU burden in mid-May. The curve of this burden then decreasing because they model as if the social distancing policies they advocate for have actually been enacted. And then the curve continues to decrease through summertime in their projected modeling. They run the model with robust social distancing practices in place for five months through the end of August. And they show after that a predicted rebound of cases and overwhelming of ICU resources this fall if social distancing practices are abandoned. I'll come back to this in a moment, but I want to give you the conclusion of the report first. They say, quote, in addition, even if all patients were able to be treated, we predict there would still be in the order of 250,000 deaths in Great Britain and 1.1 to 1.2 million in the United States. We therefore conclude that epidemic suppression is the only viable strategy at the current time. The social and economic effects of the measures which are needed to achieve this policy goal will be profound. Many countries have adopted such measures already, but even those countries at an earlier stage of their epidemic, such as the UK, will need to do so imminently. However, we emphasize that it is not at all certain that suppression will succeed long term. No public health intervention with such disruptive effects on society has been previously attempted for such a long duration of time. How populations and societies will respond remains unclear, end quote. Okay, so I didn't get into breaking down the data and curves that the report walks through. You should go to the report. Again, read it yourself. They very elegantly look at rates and projections for each combination of social distancing practices and what effect that will have on the timeline for overwhelming our hospitals and ICUs and the total death rate from the disease. They make a point that is very important to hear. Dr. Ferguson's team states that without some significant change in either how medical providers are able to treat patients with COVID-19, like a new medicine that would help with symptom management, or a substantial evolution of the virus that makes it less virulent or severe in the way that it affects people, that social distancing practices they recommend may need to stay in place until a widely available vaccine is developed, which they estimate could take 18 months or more. That's 18 months, a year and a half from now. And that's the point that I don't think many people in our society have come to terms with. This may not be a pandemic that resolves itself in a couple of months. This may not be a short-term issue. We could be in this for the foreseeable future. Now, I want to wrap up with a little commentary from some key sources on how this report has been received this last week, and of course, uh, a quick update on Dr. Ferguson contracting COVID-19. Now, the New York Times published uh, their own rundown of the report on Tuesday in an article titled, Behind the Virus Report That Jarred the U.S. and the U.K. to Action, by Mark Landler and Stephen Castle. Their article is also going to be in the show notes. Um, in their article, they cite Richard Horton, the editor-in-chief of The Lancet, who posted this on Twitter. He says, quote, 
I can't help but feel angry that it has taken almost two months for politicians and even, quote, experts to understand the scale of the danger from SARS-CoV-2. Those dangers were clear from the very beginning. Now, Dr. Horton references the first article on COVID-19 published in The Lancet on January 24th. Now, they were not the only international medical journal to be reporting on COVID in mid to late January, but he references that article, which is also linked in the show notes. That article published in The Lancet reported early morbidity and mortality of the disease coming out of China and efforts by the city of Wuhan to drastically restrict travel just the day before on January 23rd, even while the World Health Organization at that time had not issued any kind of limitations on travel. The report also cited the need for the international community to study the disease and respond effectively, concluding with these words, the time to act is now. So there's a lot of frustration over the report coming out of Imperial College this last week saying, you know, the international healthcare community knew that this could be a really substantial problem at the end of January, and we've perhaps lost a substantial amount of time that we could have proactively responded to the disease outbreak. Uh, But nonetheless, I want the listeners to know that the Imperial College report has gained incredible traction this last week and is really influencing international policy. So I want to bring in another uh, viewpoint. Um, Bill Gates ran a Reddit session this week in which he speculated that the Imperial College's report was too severe in its projections, stating, quote, Fortunately, it appears the parameters used in that model were too negative. The experience in China is the most critical data we have. They did their, quote, shutdown and were able to reduce the number of cases. They are testing widely, so they see rebounds immediately, and so far, there have not been a lot. They avoided widespread infection. The imperial model does not match this experience. Models are only as good as the assumptions put into them. People are working on models that match what we are seeing more closely, and they will become a key tool. A group called Institute for Disease Modeling that I fund, again Bill Gates, is one of the groups working with others on this. So Gates makes a key point. The Imperial College's report is based on complex modeling, which took the most recent data available to inform their projections. Data continues to come in, and the disease continues to evolve globally. And I'm confident that models will continue to be updated from numerous organizations, including the Imperial College's Center for Global Infectious Disease Analysis, and those will continue to be published and update public policy as we move on. So the Financial Times reported yesterday that Dr. Ferguson, again, Neil Ferguson, the lead author of the Imperial College's study, uh, did in fact fall ill this week from the very disease that he's been modeling. Dr. Ferguson confirmed this, uh, that he had a positive COVID-19 test through his own Twitter account. He first developed a dry cough, followed by malaise and fever, and is currently on self-quarantine. So I find that this report is very important to have a basic understanding of, which is why I wanted to get this podcast out there. I think we're in a time of uh, unprecedented news coverage, and social media is essentially a constant barrage of information around COVID-19. The best thing that I think that can help healthcare providers, anesthesia providers, and really the general public at this point, is to find out facts from reputable news sources. 
in the Imperial College's report, though there may be flaws and though their projections may change with time based upon updated modeling and new data, are a very good grounding point to understand the severity of the disease in terms of what we might face in the coming weeks, in the coming months. So lastly, for this episode, I want to leave you with the words of Dr. Tedros Ghebreyes. He's the Director General of the World Health Organization, and he said this this week, quote, COVID-19 is taking so much from us, but it's also giving us something special, the opportunity to come together as one humanity, to work together, to learn together, to grow together. Spread the word, not the virus. I'll see you next time.